0: Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk. I'm Emily Primo, assistant editor of Fraud Magazine, and I'm joined by Chris Constantine. Chris is the assistant city manager for the city of Chico, and he's going to talk to us about fraud schemes that are perpetrated in local government. Thanks for joining us, Chris.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. Why don't we jump right in and why don't you tell us a little bit about your role and what it entails?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I currently serve as the Assistant City Manager for Chico. Previous to that, I was the Chief chief Financial Officer, HR Director, and IT Director, and also responsible for our Fraud, Waste, and Abuse uh, program here at the city. Previous to that, I served 15 years in local government as an auditor for the city of San Diego and San Jose, where there, too, we are also responsible for the fraud programs in those cities. I am currently in law enforcement. Spent the last 10 years in local law enforcement. I'm a certified fraud examiner, certified internal auditor, and certified law enforcement auditor.
0: Okay, great. And um, as the now in your current role as the assistant city manager, uh, what does your day to day look like?
1: Our departments currently report through me to the city manager. In that case, the police chief, fire chief, and the rest of the department directors report to me. So my Day-to-day ends up being more of the due diligence over all the activities that the city currently has. And And as a full service city, you can imagine that's a lot. In terms of our fraud program, I work very closely with our chief financial officer in administering our hotline and conducting trainings internally.
0: You mentioned the hotline and our report to the nations actually states that a tip is the most common form of reporting frauds. Do you find that having a hotline in place in your organization has been really helpful when it comes to people reporting fraud?
1: It has been helpful in terms of providing an avenue where people can report. In terms of what brings cases to our attention, our hotline is relatively new and without proper education of both our internal and external customers, our residents, they don't necessarily know that that's the best avenue to get a quick response to their concerns. And so we now, I would say that as opposed to the 40-plus percent where the global study found tips being of a benefit to identifying fraud, Ours is probably more along the 10 to 15 percent. And we're finding other cases where we're doing our due diligence or a supervisor identifies something and brings it to our attention as well as a resident.
0: So to jump into fraud at the local level, can you tell me a little bit about how fraud at the local level of government differs from fraud at the state or federal level?
1: As you can imagine, that both the federal government and the state are much longer, larger than any local government, except for maybe the top 10 cities in the country, and because of that, you'll find a lack of a dedicated department or function that's responsible for both identifying and responding to fraud. Most of America is made up of medium-sized cities, and in, in a lot of those cities, they do not have a function that all they do is accountability, efficiency, effectiveness, and fraud. Chico is just like that. We don't have a department that does fraud, and so it falls to somebody such as myself as a collateral duty. Because of that, You'll also find that there are less training opportunities due to either funding or, loc- or your location, which makes the ACFE in a great position and opportunity for us to gain that training, since they offer so much self-training and trainings that go around the region. You'll also find that there's less ex- opportunities for somebody who is in a fraud area to gain the variety of experiences from different departments in a local government, because being a smaller local government, you don't necessarily have that opportunity, as there are fewer people, fewer transactions actions. And that is especially the case for a medium to small-sized city. And lastly, what you'll find is the relationships that individuals have at the local government level are broader and deeper than what you find at the state and federal level. And because of that, the risk of fraud that does occur from those relationships goes up.
0: What are some of the most common or repeated frauds that you see are perpetrated at the local level of government.
1: Across my now 20 years of experience in local government, employee time misuse is a big one. As you can imagine that internal to government, people come and go, the schedules are hugely different from one another. You have 24-hour operations that occur on our public safety side and a variety of schedules. I count them now over 15 on the non-public safety side. And then because we offer services 24 hours a day to the public that are not public safety, you'll end up seeing public works employees also sporadically coming in at all hours of the day. And because of that, you can imagine keeping track of who's supposed to be where becomes hugely difficult. What we found is we had had instances where employees did misuse their time and that's something given that government employees time and cost represents greater than 75 percent of taxpayers money it's a huge area for us in terms of identifying that fraud what we also found is the misuse of public resources and that's both by employees and non-employees for employees everything we do from the time we get into the office to the time we leave everything we have is paid for by a taxpayer or by the taxpayers and therefore it can only be used for the benefit of the services we provide to those taxpayers. So cruising the web for personal gain or running a business while you're out at a fire station, those are things that obviously the public does not want to be paying for, and those are things that we come across. In terms of purchasing and contract fraud, including all the services we provide, this is a huge area with an opportunity for fraud to occur. We have come across opportunities where employees have bought items and used those for their own personal business. We've come across external vendors who have provided services that didn't meet the standards that we had in our request for proposals when we went out and awarded that service to those individuals. Definitely an area where there are huge dollars that are subject to fraud. Workers' compensation. Employees, you can imagine, that work 24 hours a day outside protecting our lives get hurt on occasion. And in getting hurt, you do find that sometimes it's more lucrative for them to stay out and not come back. And therefore, you run into cases where we're paying out on workers' compensation, where we should be having them back in the office working.
0: What are some of the most important or cost-effective measures local government should be taking to prevent fraud?
1: The easiest one is identifying and training one individual who will be responsible for your program. Now, granted, one individual alone can't do it all, but you need to at least have somebody that you that when you think about who's responsible for this program, you can point a finger towards that person. And that person should be given the ability to have the amount of time to dedicate to the fraud and risk assessment that they need to do internal to the organization. Secondly, you need to develop and communicate a robust fraud policy. And I don't mean one paragraph that says, we believe in the highest level of integrity and therefore do not approve of any fraud that may occur. It, it has to be specific and it has to provide all the teeth that are necessary, such as what the ACFE puts out, um, to allow somebody to understand what is fraud, what is it defined as, what are red flags, if I see it, who do I report it to, and those who are reported to um, that there's fraud out there, how do we respond to it? Thirdly, you need to establish a hotline, whether that be something you have internal to your your organization or something you go out and get a third-party vendor. In our case, we go out and use the network, which operates 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. You'll get a live person who's trained. They're able to interview and get the information that you need from that individual. Lastly, you need to train your employees about the red flags of fraud and their obligation to report it and to whom they need to report that to.
0: You mentioned a fraud policy and training your employees on the red flags of fraud. How do you go about communicating that policy, or how would you go about training the employees about these fraud policies or red flags?
1: In this day and age of technology, emailing a link or emailing a policy to every single employee that works for you is simple and costs. Nothing we we do that internally. We also publish that policy on our web page it's one click off of our main page where anybody, whether it be an employee or a resident, could go into and find how to report it, identify what the policy is, and eventually where we it, it is where we will include online training in terms of training internally government. Hasn't been known for providing a lot of training opportunities to employees on a wide variety of areas. Fraud is obviously another area. But we find that employees welcome having the opportunity to step away for an hour or even for a full day to receive training on a topic such as fraud because they, one, don't know what it exactly is, and two, don't know how would I go about identifying and responding to that. And so when we offer those type of trainings, it's highly valued by employees.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. As far as the red flags go, what are some typical red flags that you see in your specific area of fraud?
1: Well, there's a huge amount of them, but let me talk about some of the big ones that you'll probably see in other organizations. A lack of internal controls is huge. When you walk into an area and you find that one employee is doing everything from soup to nuts, from processing a transaction to booking the transaction to reporting on it, that's an instant red flag. Now, whether anything wrong is happening is a different story, but at least it's an area that draws your attention to it. When you're looking at transactions and you find something that may be abnormal, a certain dollar amount for a check that was cut to somebody that is higher than what is normal since we pay them on a monthly basis, that is something that you take a look at. Or even a payment where we're making two payments, either of the same amount or of a different amount, that is a red flag of fraud. In terms of a red flag towards an employee, you may find that you have a stellar employee and then all of a sudden something changes about that employee their performance starts to fall, their attendance gets worse, or their lifestyle changes. All red flags of a change indicate there's something going on and the potential for fraud goes up.
0: That's great. So what kind of measures should local government put in place to better prevent the types of fraud you described earlier?
1: So I took measures as things that we could do to help prevent fraud, not necessarily some data type of metrics. And so training across the organization, all I can say is training, training, training. This is a complex area. Fraud can occur in so many different ways. In order to keep things to the forefront, you have to train the heck out of all your employees and provide variety. You have to then document your processes and procedures for any key area where you believe fraud may occur. And that also should ensure that you have appropriate separations of duties, or if you can't separate important duties from one individual, some type of compensating control that should something occur, somebody would receive information that allows them to look into that. Um, A third measure you could use is to go out and do regular due diligence reviews. I like to go out and pull our master vendor file and our accounts payable transactions and start running a a variety of analytical tests and identify transactions that are of interest. Go out, pull the documentation for those transactions and see if I can find something that's abnormal. I enjoy doing that. That's something that anybody who is in the fraud area or has that as a responsibility should be performing them on a regular basis and do them across the organization. Public reporting of fraud is a fourth measure that needs to be there. When you identify a fraud, and I've seen this in a number of organizations. We do this in San Diego, and I've seen it all across the country. You've investigated the fraud. You've identified the root cause, what happened. You need to turn around and publicize that back out to the organization to show the organization and its employees that we take this seriously, we do respond, we do find it no matter what its complexities, and that somebody will be held accountable for it. Now, you don't necessarily provide the names of individuals or information that may allow people to figure out who it is, but you need to provide enough that clearly communicates and conveys this is not acceptable. There's two other areas that you could also work towards. Contracts. Most of what we do in government that involves any dollars of consequence have a contract. On the personnel side, it's a memorandum of understanding with an employee group that specifies all the rights and privileges compensation that you have with those individuals. On the external side, it's a true blue written contract. What you need to ensure you have in those contracts are requirements for detailed accounting of the time and deliverables that are billed to your city or local government. So, when somebody is billing you for the time they spent on something, you need to know exactly how much time, where, for, uh, for what type of activity. The same way that you would do if you were asking somebody to deliver a work product to you, show me how much time for what aspect of that project so that somebody can assess whether it's a reasonable amount of time and money that you spent on those activities. And then, lastly, you need to ensure that all your contracts have a right to audit and document retention clause. The worst thing that you could find is to enter into a contract with somebody, find that something doesn't really look right, then try to go out and obtain documentation or the ability to look at their finances to determine whether something is wrong, and then to have them respond back from their attorney, I'm sorry, your agreement with us doesn't provide you the right to come in and audit our information that makes it a whole heck of a lot harder to be able to identify whether fraud occurred with that external vendor.
0: Okay, those are really good. You mentioned first off that all the different types of roles you've had in the anti-fraud arena. So can you tell me some of the challenges you faced along the way?
1: There's really two. One that's always a challenge no matter who you are and where you are is keeping fraud awareness at the forefront of employees' minds. As you can imagine, in this country, the amount of hours we spend at work has been going up over the last few decades, the amount of activities we are performing go up, and now we're adding fraud to the whole litany of activities that I'm asking you as a supervisor to perform. It's obviously not gonna be the number one thing on your list. And so trying to keep people aware of it, mindful of it, has definitely been a challenge. In my current role, Now, effectively, as the chief operating officer of this city, finding the time to be able to do due diligence reviews in a variety of different areas across the organization has been really difficult. And so I'm left to now trying to identify other employees who I can train and encourage to conduct those due diligence reviews. However, the lower you go in an organization, the less authority and responsibility those people have, and they're just as overworked as you are at the top. And so... In order to address some of those, my recommendation is if organizations want to take fraud seriously in their organizations, hire dedicated individuals with the skills and training, preferably those with CFEs, to just do this 24 hours a day.
0: I think that's fantastic advice. And then finally, what advice would you give to those looking to enter into this profession?
1: Well, whether you're a new employee or somebody who has been in the area, or just somebody who wants to change professions, there are some basic personal fundamentals of a good fraud examiner. One, they are always professionally skeptical. And so anything they look at, they're always processing in their minds what it is, why it is that way, and ensuring that it's what they believe is well thought out. They have a trust but verify attitude. So you may be told something sounds completely true. You're not questioning that person's integrity, but you're going to go where you can and verify what they're telling you is true. This isn't, look at Wikipedia, oh, it's, well, if Wikipedia says it, then it must be true. No, you go out to the source documents and prove that either it's right or wrong. You have an attitude of wanting to learn everything. So you may be an artsy person, but you have to have the desire to also want to learn data and analysis. You may be a science person, and you have to have the ability to want to learn public safety. That person that broadly just wants to be a lifelong learner is definitely a good personal skill for a good fraud examiner. And then lastly, for at least the personal fundamentals, you have a high level of ethics and integrity. You want to do the right thing, and it would be difficult for anybody to get you to do otherwise. In terms of an educational and training base, a good background in government accounting and finance, for obvious reasons, an understanding of some of the fundamentals of fraud. And if, if you're early in your career, it means learning the basics. If you're intermediate or late in your career, getting your CFE and taking some of the advanced courses that the ACFE offers. You want to also have the ability to do risk assessments, to understand how to do those. You need to have solid writing skills. And what's becoming even more important now in the future, solid data and analytical skills. Lastly, you need to learn about the organization or function that you'll be working within. If you're asked to go into the police department as a finance professional, you not only need to know your finance area, but you need to know broadly all the different areas within the police department and the functions that occur therein so that when you're looking for the potential of fraud or a red flag, you have enough of an understanding across the board to be able to identify it, even if it's in an area that you're not within.
0: Okay, that's great. I really like the always when people mention the ethics part because it's so important and we teach ethics and compliance so heavily in the ACFE, so I'm glad that you mentioned that.
1: Absolutely. I sh- you know, I should have said that first, but sometimes we think it's a given, but we have to always remind ourselves it's the first thing that starts us down the road of being good fraud examiners.
0: Thank you, Chris, for joining us today, and thank you to our audience for listening to this month's edition of Fraud Talk. We hope you'll join us next month. For more episodes, visit acfe.com slash podcast. This is Emily Primo signing off.